Lord, we are thankful for your word, and we ask, Lord, now for you to allow us to grow and um, really just understand, Lord, first of all, who you are, how great you are, but at the same time, Lord, to be mindful of what you are calling us to be. So we, we place ourselves under your word, under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to do as you will with your breathed out word. Allow me to simply be your messenger, to be faithful, to reclaim your truth for your glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever experienced deja vu? Have you ever experienced deja vu? You know, deja vu is one of those strange experiences, right? You, 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 all of a sudden, you're overcome with this feeling that what you're seeing or what you're experiencing, you have already experienced in the, in the exact same way somewhere else before. Imagine if you were on a a vacation trip like to Niagara Falls and you, it's your first time there. You know it's your first time there and you go and you, you're standing at the brink of the falls and you're looking at the water pouring over and you're overcome with this, this feeling of I've, I've been here before, I've, I've, I sense that. Um, we call that deja vu. Or maybe you're out with friends and you're, you're at a restaurant and you're, you're ordering a meal and you're, you're sitting down and you're talking about you know, life and politics and sports and things like that and all of a sudden you think, man, we, it's almost like we've experienced the exact same thing somewhere before. And quite honestly, the scientists are not too sure exactly what's happening there. There's probably some kind of a, a misstep in our brain that that somehow is recording what's going on and then it's telling us and it becomes memory and that kind of stuff. But it's a strange feeling. Now friends, there's a sense in which when we come to this chapter, it's deja vu. I mean, it's just the same stuff all over again. This is all sounding very, very familiar. There's a rebellion again. There's a worthless man again. There's a bloody killing, again, a besieged city, again, a wise woman, again. In fact, we've seen this so many times already, we, we run the risk of kind of yawning our way through this text. I mean, we're almost to the point where we're, we're desensitized to Joab's killing. You know, the, the entrails in this story and the, the head being thrown over the wall, it's like, oh yeah, this is old stuff now. There's a sense in which, yeah, okay, there's going to be someone else rebelling against David, and there's going to be another chase, and another bloody killing, another wise woman, and the kingdom's restored, and that all looks ahead to Christ's kingdom, yawn, yawn, yawn. And I, I get that. There's a sense in which there's, you know, the, the narrator is telling the story, but the story is hammering the same theme. And so there's a, there's a challenge for us to, to get into this text, and to allow it to afresh remind us of what it is that God wants us to see and do. So the question is this, why is there so much ink spilled to seemingly say the same thing over and over and over again? Is it that God thinks that we're so dumb we need to hear it over and over and over again? Well, you can talk about the person next to you if you want, but um, 
Or maybe you can just talk about yourself, and probably yes, you probably need, need that, right? Um, or, or maybe it's, it's to drive home that the enemies of God, no matter whom they be, will not be able to stand against God. That's a very possible reason. Or maybe it's because life in this world is hard, and finding stability as a citizen of God's kingdom is constantly challenging. I mean, here's David, who's king of this new kingdom that God raised up. And if God raised it up, you'd think what? Smooth sailing. But that's not what happens. So I think that one of the points that the author of this book is driving at is that although God is raising up his kingdom through David, the kingdom is frail. It's imperfect. And it will constantly have to endure challenge after challenge after challenge. And, And we are to look forward to the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom where he reigns and he rules physically. But we wait. And while we wait, we are in this imperfect, frail, fractured kingdom. We call it, you know, this, this tension between the already and the not yet. That's how theolog- theologians think about it. If you're a child of God, you're in the kingdom, but that kingdom hasn't been fully realized yet. And so there is this tension because you still have to struggle with sin. You still have to tr- struggle with people who are sinful. And so this morning, just as we, as we put together this, this melodic line of this passage, I've, I've thought about it a long and hard, and I've really come to this conclusion. What's going on here is that the writer's reminding us about the ongoing search for stability in an unstable kingdom. You mean, oh no, not not another rebellion. I mean, the last rebellion covered like six chapters. Are we gonna have another six chapters? Fortunately, no. Uh, This one is summarized in one chapter, but but, but you get the the fact that there's, there's there's a tiring factor about having to live in a frail world and as a citizen of the kingdom, having to deal with sin and deal with sinful people. Now notice oh, in this passage, um, there, are, there are these two things that actually hold it together. You just go, go to verse one and you'll notice, it talks there, Sheba is speaking. You notice it says, he blew the trumpet every man to his tents, is what it says. Then at the end of this chapter, verse 22, Joab is speaking and he says, it says he blew the trumpet and every man to his home. We call this a top and tail. There's a big, kind of beginning and an end. There's, there's kind of an anchor to say this is a section uh, of a story. And there's something about the beginning and the end. It begins with Sheba saying it. It ends with Joab saying it. And so we kind of nestle ourselves into this story, recognizing it's, there's movement going on here. And so this morning we want to talk about, first of all, this, this man by the name of Sheba, and, and notice that every time he is mentioned, it's Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, I don't know, every, every time you're mentioned, every time you meet someone, you know, hi, I'm Rod, the son of Aubrey, that would be my dad's name, you know? Now, if you're from, like, you know, from Russia you, you, or Ukraine, that they, they always add that extra, you know, familial title, but it's, it's kind of unusual here, and every time it's there, and, and yet we find out later in the story why that would be significant. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll leave you hanging on that one. But we have this man by the name of Sheba, and he is going to lead a revolt. And I'm calling him a scoundrel. 
And the scoundrel is revealed, first of all. And there's a reason why I'm calling him a scoundrel. I want you, first of all, to think about the man of, uh, by the man by the name of Sheba. Notice what it says, though, in this passage. It says, now it happened to be there um, a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. Now, when we see the words, now there happened to be, we know there's more to the story going on. Uh, we know that other people had gathered at Gilgal, and they've actually come to be humble before David because they're recognizing that David is going to be set up as king. But now we have this, this man who's, who's there, but he's going to, something, something significant is going to happen. This is no coincidence, and it's a reminder that the affairs of man are all under the control of the creator of the universe. And it's also a sense for us to say, you know what, this is something we need to take notice of. Just happen to be there a worthless man. Now where's there? Again, it's Gilgal. So remember the last time we looked at this passage, they were, people were coming, they're reconciling with David, David is exercising mercy, um, he's being kind, um, and though there's one more person who shows up in his name is Sheba. And he's described as not only the, the son of Bichri, but a worthless man. Now, literally, that means a man of Belial, which you want to translate a little bit further, means a man of the devil. And this is actually an expression we've seen throughout the Samuel discussions, right? Um, this is, um, this is, uh, sorry, this is something we, we saw at the beginning of 1 Samuel, and it continues on. Let me give you some, some, some thoughts on that. First of all, Hannah was challenged by the priest, and she actually herself, kind of in a defensive way, um, insists that she is not a daughter of Belial. That's the beginning of the story. Of course, the sons of Eli were called worthless men. Why? Because they corrupted the worship in the house of God. Then a little later, there's Nabal, if you remember. We met him in 1 Samuel 25. Um, he was identified by his wife as a worthless man, as a man of the devil. That's not something, ladies, you should go home and share with your family about your husband, but that was the case there in that situation. And even Shimei, just a little while before this passage, had cursed David, calling him a man of Belial. This was no light expression. This was a very derogatory expression. This is the kind of thing you say to someone you do not like. In fact, he is an enemy. And so we have here this man who is described as a worthless man, a man of the devil. Now let's look at his message. His message. And his message ultimately is rebel. But he says, we have no portion in David. Now wait a second here. If you were with us last week, at the end of that, that chapter, chapter 19, Israel is saying, we have 10 portions in Israel and Judah. You only have one. And now a Benjaminite is coming and saying, well, wait a second. We have no portions in David. We don't want anything to do with David. And to add that, he he continues his insult, and he says, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. 
And that expression, son of Jesse, is not supposed to just simply link into a family. It's a derogatory, it's a put down. So there is definitely bad blood between the Benjaminites and David still. Remember the king before David was Saul. He was a Benjaminite. He was chosen by the people to be king like the kings of other nations. David, however, was chosen by God, a man after God's own heart. Which doesn't mean that David sought out God, but that God sought out David. That expression means a man that is chosen by God's own heart. In our contemporary context, it's flipped around. It was God that pursued David. It was God that chased him down. It was God that said, this is the one I am going to anoint. And now, Sheba is raising up the men of Israel against David, against God's chosen and anointed king. He's telling those who want to side with him to go back to their tents and to get ready to join his army against David. So unlike the others who came, Shimei, Ziba, and Mephibosheth, all coming seeking restoration, Sheba is seeking to stand against David and his return as king. And what Sheba is saying to all the people present in Gilgal is this. David is not my king. David is not our king, Israel, and all who agree with me join with me against him. Now friends, we, we understand that sentiment. It's only just been a few weeks when we've heard Donald Trump is not my president. And people saying if he becomes president, I'm moving to Canada. I don't think anyone's actually followed through with that. But you did hear right after the election, oh, by the way, California is thinking about seceding. Did you hear that? Measure was put in, a bill was put in, this is a reaction. I'm not trying to get political, I'm just saying these are the things that happen. You know, Donald Trump is not my president. And of course the response to that is, uh, sorry he is. You may not like it, but that is what he is. Now it's worth noting that Absalom's rebellion um, was really to take over the king role as well as the kingdom. What we have here with Sheba is not so much a, a, tagan, a, 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 a rebellion that would be a coup, it's more a rebellion that is a secession. He's asking Israel to come with him away and not recognize David as their king. And it's worth noting that Sheba's words would later be used as a rallying cry for that very thing, for the northern tribes, the tribes of Israel, who will eventually divide the kingdom. Look at 1 Kings 12 and verse 16. And this is the, this is the point in the, the, the history of Israel where, where the, the, the tribes of the north and the south, they split. The northern Tribes, they say, you know what? We're not gonna have anything to do with this. And here's the rallying cry, verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Does that sound familiar at all? 
David is not our king. And notice the response. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So Israelites, they went off with Sheba, David with Judah now heads down to Jerusalem. The lines are clearly drawn. Israel withdrawing, following the son, uh, Sheba the son of Bichri, and Judah remaining, and following their king. I love that word, steadfastly, to Jerusalem. You know, just, just a few moments earlier, you would have thought, hey, this is, things are going well here. I mean, you had, you had, who was it, Shimei come and Ziba come and David's been gracious, he's been merciful, he, he, Mephibosheth has come and they've restored that. Hey, this is good. The, the, the kingdom's, gonna, kingdom's starting to, to be restored. Remember, the, 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 the rebellion that was under um, Absalom was not just along, might want to say, party lines. It wasn't just Israel and then Judah. It was a mixture of them all. So there's this recovery now and all of a sudden, another rebellion comes. Another effort to secede, another effort to undermine David as king. Now friends, today we can say the same very thing. Because see, Sheba didn't like the fact that David was king, but friends, David was still king. And today, we can say the same thing. Jesus, the greater David, is the king of kings. He may not be appreciated. He may not be liked. People may not want to follow him. People may not want what he has to say or like what he has to say. They may raise up armies against him. They may try to separate themselves from him, but their attitude or positioning against Jesus doesn't take away from the fact that he is the king, the rightful king and the very king of kings. He is the king. He is our king. And so no matter what you think, no matter what what you say, or no matter what you do, the fact won't change. Jesus is king. See, the friends, the same attitude is still present in the context in which we live. The real question is this. Are you willing to recognize Jesus as your king, or has someone else replaced, or something else replaced, Jesus as your Lord and master? So the two groups go their separate ways. Men of Judah, they go to, or men of Israel go to their tents and follow Sheba. The men of Judah go back to Jerusalem with their king. And then we read something surprising, but also very, very sad. Notice verse three. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took 10 concubines whom he had left care for the house and put them in the house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now friends, you're just reading this story in a cursory way, you're like, how does this fit into what's going on here? All of a sudden there's Sheba, and the rest of the story's about Sheba, and chasing him down, and then, where did, how did this come here? Well, it comes, I think, first of all, because it's a natural, it's a natural flow of what would happen when David went back to Jerusalem. He would have to face um, uh, that situation that, that he, he knows had taken place. 
But as he comes back and he deals with these women who, by the way, had been sexually abused by Absalom specifically and purposely as an insult to David, his first response and reaction is to provide for their safety. They had been violated and what they needed now was protection. And so be careful when you read this to say, well, they put under guard as if they were in prison. That's not the point. The, the point is they were, they were put under protection. They were safe. And, and people who have been through that need to know that they are safe. Their shame was too great. And they would stay there as widows until the days of their death. Now, you may be left wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Sheba and his rebellion? And why include this sad and, and gut-wrenching information in a story that is about another uprising against David? And I think that's a good and a logical question. And I think that the answer, that the narrator, uh, the answer is that the narrator, by his inclusion of these events, hear this, is skillfully reminding us that all this division, all this rebellion, all this suffering, all this conflict, and all this shame is the result of what? David's sin. See, we're not, just, we're not just saying, oh, here's an uprising and David's going to deal with it. We're reminded why this is actually happening. And it causes us to reflect a little bit and say, oh, I need to remind myself here that, that, that sin does affect people. Sin does affect others. It has rippling and lasting effects. And it takes us back to God's word, doesn't it? The word of God through the prophet Nathan. And this would be in 2 Samuel 12, 11. He talks about the sword will not depart from your house. But in particular, in verse 11, it says this. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the side of the sun. And you can just imagine David coming back and that word from God through Nathan is resounding in his heart. He knows their suffering is the result of their sin, as well as all the other stuff that's going on. This is the, the scoundrel who's been revealed. His name is Sheba. By the way, that, I didn't tell you this, but that word worthless man, son of the devil, can also be translated scoundrel. That's why I chose to use that word. It's how that word is understood. So we've seen the scoundrel is revealed, but now the scoundrel is pursued. David hears Sheba's rallying cry, and he'll have none of it. He would not allow Sheba to revolt, and, and then as a result of that, to, to mushroom out of control so he's determined to take very, very swift action. So he turns to Amasa. Now remember, Amasa was the leader of the armies that were rebelling, uh, re rebelling under the leadership of Absalom, David's son. And David, as a, as a way to extend kindness and mercy, tells Amasa that he now can lead his armies. It was, a, it was a bold political move, but it communicated to all those who were part of the rebellion that David was welcoming them back, and he wanted ultimately peace. 
So now he turns to Amasa and he says, listen, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah and he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed. And so what happens here is we don't know exactly why he was delayed. Maybe he was just slow and trying to, trying to figure things out. And just remember, he was also um, this, this enemy leader who is now trying to rally the, the, the people of David. And so you wonder whether there was even some tension there. They were like, you know, how can I follow this guy when he was actually the leader of the other army, and yet I need to submit to, to David? And it, it, it may have had some significance, but we don't know specifically. We're not told. All we're told is that he delayed. And not that, that his, his delay was any part of it, any of his character. It just happened that he was delayed. But David, wanting to make sure that the rebellion was put down, now turns to Abishai. This is plan B now, Abishai. And he says to Abishai, hey, listen, I need for you to go handle this. So the tone is set by David, and the concern here is for the rebellion. Verse 6, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm, David says, than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. Again, there's no, there's no hint that David is upset with Amasa or he, he thinks anything wrong about him. It's just his, he's wanting to be urgent to go after um, Sheba and to deal with him. But it's, it's the narrator that sets the tone for what's about to happen next. David is thinking Sheba, but there's a story within a story here. Verse seven, and there went out after him, this is under Abishai, Joab's men, which would include Joab, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Abishai led his brother Joab and his men in this pursuit. But it's interesting that from this point on, Abishai is not the leader. Abishai is there, but it's his brother Joab who kind of takes this leadership role. Now remember, Joab, who was the leader of the armies, had been demoted. And it's very likely that David took that as an opportunity not only to provide appeasement for the rebelling army, but also to discipline Joab, who had been disobedient to the things that David had said, although disobedient and successful. So that's why, as we continue on looking at the story here, we see how Joab now is, is pursuing Sheba, but he's pursuing Sheba by way of another man by the name of Amasa that we've already seen. We've had these general details about what's going on, but now it's almost like the, the, the camera lens zooms in on this, this one scene um, at this meeting place by this great stone. It's interesting as you read scripture like this, the writer is talking about this this great stone in Gibeon, as if not only the people in the story know about it, but the people who are reading the account know about it. He certainly knows about it. There was a, a great stone there. It was a rallying place, apparently. It was a place, uh, it was a landmark for people. It's like, oh yeah, the great stone. We don't know where that is right now. But for them, that's what it was. And so there's this landmark. Now again, we don't know whether this was a planned meeting or it just happened to be where they, where they stopped and it seems like it was probably one of those places where people would stop and then they would go. 
But anyway, Amasa comes to meet them, and so here they are all together. And next we're told about Joab and his belt and his sword. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. In other words, he was fully arrayed for battle. And over it was a belt with a sword, and in its sheath uh, fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Now, don't get the idea that the falling out means that, you know, Joab somehow stumbled, and it's like, you know, the, the sword just kind of fell on the ground, that kind of stuff. This was no stumble. This was stealth. This was skill. This was... Um, a, a very uh, wise killer of people. I say wise, I mean skillful killer of people by the name of Joab. We've seen him do it many times. So when, when it says the sword fell out and lands in his hand, right? it's not that it just he's walking around in his belt, you know, you know, he's wearing his, his, you know, his jeans too low and, and the belt just kind of falls on the ground. He goes to pick it up and somehow doesn't move. No, this was all part of the plan. And you can continue reading here. We, we see these, these, these feigned words of affection and greeting. And Joab said to Amasa, it, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So this is a demonstration of affection. This is a demonstration of welcome. And while he's saying that, there's something else going on with the other hand. And it's something nasty. And it's something brutal. And we're shocked by this, this brutality of Amasa, Amasa's death, and we're, we're shocked by the, the butchery of David's sword. Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. It's just like, wow. I mean, this is, <laughs> um, this is a, it's a pretty rugged story, isn't it? But then again, are we really surprised? I mean, we've seen it all before from Joab. He butchered Abner, David's son. He skewered Absalom, David's other son. And now it's Amasa's turn. Joab is a man that specializes in treachery and blood, and he succeeds at doing it. He is a killer, and he's good at it. We need to fast forward to the final words of David. Because as we get through the story, we'll find that David actually gets Sheba and gets his, his head and, and, and the uprising is over. But there's a sense in which, okay, Joab may have been successful, but his treachery doesn't go unnoticed. So look forward to 2 Kings chapter 2. It's just a few pages over. 2 Kings chapter 2. And these are a collection of the last words of David before he passes away. Instructions to his son Solomon. And we're going to read now at verse 5, and we'll read through verse 6. And I just want you to notice what David says. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. The act, therefore, act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. 
Let me go back to verse 9 of our text. And Joab says to Amasa, is it well with you, my brother? In other words, it's peace. It's a greeting of peace. And David's saying to Solomon, don't let Joab go to the grave in peace. He had violated his wishes. He had been disobedient to him on a number of occasions. This man of war, this man of blood, this man of justice by his own terms would be ultimately dealt with by Solomon. But back to the story, Joab gambled and because he was ultimately successful, even when he returns to Jerusalem, nothing really happens. The sad reality is that there are many who played Joab's games with the real king of kings. There's a sense in which they deliberately go against his wishes because there's no immediate response by God. And you, you've seen people kind of joking about this. It's like, well, I'm going to do, and you fill in the blank, you know, and it's like, you know, like, you know, all right, strike me down, God, and God doesn't strike them down. And they're like, well, I guess God's not going to act. I guess God's not going to deal with me. Hey, listen, you can defy God. You can shake your fist at God. You can, you can, you know, insult him and you can just mock him because he's not dealing with things but the reality is he does and he will and you need to think about it in this way oftentimes when people say that or even we say that there will be justice meted out either on you if you're lost and an unbeliever or on Christ if you are a believer Let's just walk through that just a minute here. For those who are unbelievers who shake their fist at God and run toward their own sinful pleasures, continuing in their rebellion against God and choosing not to bow the knee in humble repentance because of what Christ has done on the cross, there is only one end. And that end is a just judge who will exercise justice and wrath on the day of judgment. That's what unbelievers have looking forward for them unless they repent. Justice will be meted out. Now for those who are believers, those who have bowed the knee to Christ, who embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, but who choose to press on in their sin, every time they do so, they are inflicting God's wrath on the back of Jesus, the King of Kings, the Son of God. In other words, what you're choosing to do is part of the sin that Jesus bore. And God's wrath is poured out for that attitude, for that sinful thought, that sinful behavior. It is he who suffers under God's wrath for our sin. What we justly deserve, he has taken on himself. And friends, this is mercy, this is grace. This is why 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this, for our sake, he, that's the Father, made him, Christ the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might be made the righteousness of God. Our sin, past, present, and we say future sin, was taken on the shoulders of Christ on the cross. And so when I consciously choose to defy God, even though a follower, I am pouring that sin 
on the shoulders of Christ. Well, just ponder that thought. Every time you say, no, I'm not going to do it, guess what? It's one less sin that Jesus has to bear, although he can, he can carry it all. But you are inflicting wrath on the Son when you so choose to behave that way. We cannot take disobedience against the king lightly, and he deserves our loyalty and our obedience. Now the story continues. The pursuit is picked up again, but all those who walk by are shocked by what they see. Here's the the commander of the army, and there he is laying and stomach open and entrails out. This is not a pretty picture. And they're walking by thinking, what in the world has just happened? And one of One of Joab's men comes by and stands by Amasa and he says this, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. This is is Joab's political spin on what he's just done. He's saying this, if you are for David, then you're for Joab. So follow Joab. Oh, okay. So it's okay that he's killed and off on the side of the road and covered up. That's okay. Just, all right, Joab... You follow him because he's following David. There's a sense here in which you almost get to the place where Job in his sinfulness actually, you might think, believes that what he's doing is a reflection of what his king wants him to do. And sometimes, friends, this is what happens. We identify ourselves with Christ. We affirm our allegiance to him. But at the same time, we excuse our sinfulness by saying, you know, I think, I think God's okay with that. Listen to what Dale Davis says about this. Joab is both intensely loyal and completely uncontrollable. He does not raise the standard of revolt against David like Sheba, nor does he seek David's throne like Absalom. Joab is faithful to David. He does not try to become king, yet he acts as his own king. He is extremely loyal to David, but essentially unsubmissive to David. Now friends, that's actually really helpful. It's actually really defining. Think think about it, is that you? Completely loyal to Christ, but essentially unsubmissive. Not trying to become king, but acting like your own king. You see, we, we sang some songs here this morning. Every time we come, we gather as a church, we sing some songs and praise to God. We say things in our affirmation of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. So we're expressing our loyalty, our allegiance to him. But we can sing all those things. We can sign on a doctrinal statement, but then with deliberate passion pursue our own sinful pleasures. Oh, we're loyal. We're part of that, that kingdom. But I'm going to go over here and sin like I want. And they're, they're two contrary attitudes. And we even get to the place where we think that what we're doing is actually reflecting what God wants us to do. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that way. So friends, may it not be true of us, but the sad fact is, it is true of us. We're so often tossed to and fro by the winds of culture and the deceitfulness of the world 
by the pleasures of the flesh, and by the selfish pride in our hearts, and the bird that is up there hawking away. But friends, hear this, we must pray. We must must pray and we must pursue Christ by his spirit through the word, so that our lips and our hearts are in unity and conformity to Christ. What we say and what we do are a reflection of the same thing, and that is the gospel that is at work in us. So now with Amasa taken care of and David's army in support, Joab chases after Sheba. And it's worth noting that the great uprising that seemed probable in Gilgal where it talked about all Israel going along with Sheba um, ends up at a place called Abel and the only people that are following Sheba are the Bichrites. Now, you wonder why Sheba is called the son of who? Bichri. Because Bichri must have been the leader of who? The Bichrites. In other words, there was this great uprising and as he's going, people in Israel are saying, um, nah, I don't think so. And it's dwindling, dwindling, dwindling until the only people that are left are Sheba's own people. And they find themselves in this place way, way to the north. In fact, the farthest north you can be and still be in the territory of Israel and Judah. And it's a place called Abel. But here, Sheba is no longer able to continue. He's reached that furthest distance. But the very thing that David didn't want to happen is now taking place. Remember what he said to Abishai? Take your Lord's servants and pursue him lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And now he's in a fortified city. What's gonna happen here? Well, we'll find out. The scoundrel here, we'll find out, is eliminated. And there's kind of like this this overarching um, theme and that is this wise woman who comes and says, hey listen, this guy is not my leader. He is not the one that we are following, yet he is here in the city. So it says in verse 15, and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him, and Abel of Bethmachah, they, they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Now, if you remember, Joab has experience in besieging cities. That's what he was doing to the city of Rabbah when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and ultimately had Uriah killed at that same siege. Joab knew what to do, and his plan was working. But he was about to meet his match. The mighty and bloody warrior is about to meet a very wise woman. She will have her say, and Joab will listen, and he will backpedal. This is a very humorous section of Scripture, in my opinion. Now notice this wise woman. This encounter is given in great detail, and we get this dialogue back and forth. And a wise woman called from the city. Now, she must have been very dignified, because I think most people, being in a city up in a while, would have said, Hey! Hey! <laughs> Tell Joe I have to kill over here. I want to talk with him. 
But no, this is more dignified. Listen. Listen. And he came near, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she pleads her case. They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Oh, hold on, I thought you had some stuff there, okay. Now notice this, she, she appeals to the reputation of her city. First of all, it's a place of wise counsel. It's known, it has a reputation of being a place where you can come and you can get help, you can get counsel. Secondly, it's a place that seeks, um, seeks peace and is, is faithful to the king of Israel. It's considered a mother city in all of Israel. In other words, a city that's looked up to, a city that cares for other places. And it's a city from the Lord. And Joab, back, Joab backpedals, and you have to appreciate his honest response. <laughs> Joab answered, far be it from me. I mean, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not true. Now, just remember who's saying this. I mean, just, you know, he's standing there and he's speaking to this wise woman, you know, wiping off of Amasa's blood from his sword and flicking off entrails from his armor, right? While there's battering going on on the ramparts. Oh, far be it from me, far be it from me, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. I mean, he is backpedaling. This wise woman has his number. Joab continues, but a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown down, or shall be thrown to you over the wall. So then we find that the scoundrel is killed the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. Isn't that interesting? She used her wisdom. She must have been a leader in the city. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. It's quite a dramatic statement, isn't it? Throwing Sheba's head over the wall. And you're like, okay, story's over. It's done. The kingdom has been restored. Let's jump ahead to the greater kingdom, to Christ, and see, you know, here it is. Now there's still more going on here. Because this worthless scoundrel is killed, but notice next that an unshakable kingdom is restored, kind of. The rebellion's over, and Joab had been brutally successful once again. It says, so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. The job is done, it's time for everyone to go home. The season of rebellion is over. Absalom tried to take David and his throne and his kingdom but ultimately failed. Sheba tried to force a cessation from David's kingship 
and his kingdom, but ultimately failed. And we're reminded that the kingdom of God has gone, um, is going on, and will continue to go through seasons of great difficulty and trials and opposition. So in other words, the, the, the kingdom continues, there's, there's suffering, there are those who oppose it, and yet it just continues to, to move on. I hope we look through church history, you see times when there's great persecution, and yet the church, the church just continues. The church grows. Now, of course, we look at all that through our Western eyes, right? We look at it through our American Western eyes, but you go to other countries, and they've been going through persecution, they've been going through hardship, and it's different than what we're experiencing. God's kingdom will never fail. Friends, it may be fragile because of man's sinfulness. It may be challenging because of man's rebellion. But as Martin Luther finishes with the last line of his well-known hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he says this, his kingdom is what? Forever. And we need to be reminded, and, and, and the, the readers of this story needed to be reminded that in the mass of what was happening in Israel, that God's kingdom would not ultimately fail. And that is still true for us. Things happen, things change. Um, you know, do, do you feel more fearful today than you did maybe a, a few months ago simply because of who you are, you're, you're, you're a Christian. Now, if you're a Christian, you are a weird, hateful zealot. Do you know that? You've just moved into a whole new category as far as our elite society is concerned. A little bit more of a target on your back. You're gonna stand up in a public place and you're gonna give your opinion. They're gonna say, you're a Christian. Sit down and be quiet. Your opinion doesn't matter because you're just following that stupid book. I mean, the, the, the restraints are off, because you hear it now across the social media, on the TV, on the radio. Dialogue is not allowed unless you conform to us. Now friends, what that means is that the darkness is even darker and the, the light shines even brighter. But it also means that we need to be wise and thoughtful in what we say and how we say it. The kingdom will continue. God uses imperfect people like you and me to speak on his behalf and for his glory. And even our imperfect words will be the means by which he grows his kingdom. That's not how we would plan it. But God uses people like us. So in spite of corruption from within and attacks from without, the kingdom is still standing, and that is what these final verses are really all about. There are still commanders, there's still overseers, there's still administrators, there's still priests in Israel, if you read verses 23 all through the end. But I do wanna, I just wanna note for you, as we kind of look at the, the last little section here, that that we need to reflect what's being said in these last final verses with 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18 because what it said back then is this. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab the son of Zariah was over the army 
and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was recorder, and Zadok and the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech the son of Abiathar were priests, and Zariah was secretary, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now it's almost identical to what we've just read in chapter 20, but there's a significant difference. And the significant difference really is twofold. Number one, David is not mentioned as king. It's not David who's actually the one overruling in this summary statement. Who is the one who's given the dominant role in this statement? It's Joab. And there's some minor changes, but also there's no mention of the administration of justice and equity to all the people. That seems to have turned upside down. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences to a nation when sin is not taken seriously. It will impact not only the leaders, but also impact the people. And so try as much as you want to bring stability to a kingdom, you will likely fail because of the presence of a sinful king and the presence of sinful people. But when we look ahead to that promised kingdom, we look forward to being a glorified people who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who are ruled by a sinless king. Now, just a few concluding thoughts here. Number one, who is the real scoundrel? Who is the real scoundrel in Israel? Is it Sheba? Or is it Joab? Let me ask it a different way. Who is the real scoundrel in 2017? Is it the unbeliever who is all pumped about politics and hates Christians and their morality and is shaking his fist at the true king of the universe? Or... Is it the believer who states his loyalty to Jesus the King but then chooses to live his life as if he were the only king that matters? See, we we always want to look at someone else as being that scoundrel, that worthless person, but the reality is, friends, we can be that person. See, the unbeliever is lost in the blindness of darkness, having rejected the light, but the believer has been delivered from the dominion of darkness, has been ushered into light and raised up with Jesus and been given a new life. And they now are living in this light, and they know better. And for we who know better to turn around and pursue something that God has said, stay away from. Friends, that's a, that's a scandalous thing. Number two, I'll be brief here. Who is really blowing the trumpet? 
Now, I bring this out simply to say that tr- this trumpet motif is certainly here. It begins with Sheba, right? Sheba is going to lead this rebellion. He's going to rule. And at the end, it's Joab. He's blowing the trumpet. This kingdom has been restored, and he's going to rule. But friends, this, this trumpet motif moves on even into the New Testament, doesn't it? Let me just give you a few passages of Scripture you can jot down. I'll read them briefly, but just listen. Here's Jesus telling his disciples on the Mount of Olives, The following, he says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of heaven will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There's going to be a trumpet call and a gathering. And then the Apostle Paul, in talking about what happens to our bodies when they are placed in the ground for burial, he says the following, and this is 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. There's a trumpet, it's going to be sounded, it's a, it's a sound of victory, It's the sound of restoration. And Paul also comforts the Thessalonian church with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. A trumpet resounding, the kingdom has come. In the book of Revelation we read, The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Did you hear that? The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the trumpet that matters, friends. This is the sound that as Christians we long to hear the trumpet of God. Now what is it that brings scoundrels into the kingdom of God? Well, of course, it's the gospel. It's the cross. It's Christ. And friends, there's just something beautiful about what Jesus has done to restore the brokenness, the instability, with a kingdom where he rules and he reigns. And there is peace and there is stability for eternity. And we have that promise to look forward to, to long for, to live in hope of. Lord, we thank you that through the cross of Christ, we can be reconciled to you by virtue of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross that reconciliation is realized the shedding of his blood the giving of his body the sacrifice once for all being the vehicles through which the payment by which we come boldly to the throne of grace and Lord today we we just are in awe of the fact that you take the mess of this world 
And through that mess, Lord, you're even able to show us the beauty of your kingdom, the beauty of what you're doing. That even, even with the, the harsh realities of, of, of the, the fruit of David's sin, we still have the promise of the certainty that what you say will actually take place. You are to be praised. You are to be glorified because you are a great God and Savior. We ask, Lord, for your help this morning. In your name, amen.